My name is Pastor Tim Posey, and I am the pastor of the best church in the whole world, Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church here in Las Vegas. And today we're continuing a series of messages from the book of Acts. Last week we looked carefully at how we are to interpret Acts, considering all of the pertinent information in terms of background information regarding Acts. And today we're going to plunge right into the prologue, which are the first five verses of the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible or have access to a Bible, please take it now and open it with me to Acts chapter 1, and we will look at the first five verses. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the same Spirit that came on the day of Pentecost, the same Spirit that we are baptized with as we come to know Jesus Christ, would open our eyes, give us illumination, soften our hearts, make us receptive and tender and responsive to your Word, and feed our souls, for we are hungry, hungry people, and we need a word from you to help us, to instruct us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in the book of Acts, we are seeing that Jesus is preparing his apostles for the mission that they are to undertake. And so as we think about the book of Acts, let me run through a quick couple of uh, tidbits of information that I will th think will help you as we continue through the book. First, we know the book of Acts was written by Luke, one of his companions, or one of the companions of the Apostle Paul. Most scholars believe that Luke wrote this book no uh, later than about 60 A.D., since there is absolutely no mention in the book of the Neronian persecution of Christians, that happened around 64 A.D., in which Paul and Peter both were executed. So Luke wrote this book about 30 years after the life and death of Jesus. Luke wrote the account for a man by the name of Theophilus. If you break down his name, Theo is God, uh, Philus is philia, which is the Greek word for love. So it's one who is loved by God or one who is adored or beloved of God. Now, he's not a fic fictional character. He's a real person. 
We know that because of the way Luke speaks of him in both his gospel and in this. He is referred to as most excellent in Luke's gospel, but he was more than likely a Roman official and a convert because he had been taught, but he needed assurance and reassurance and security in what he had been taught. And so the Bible gives us four different descriptions of Jesus' life, but only one of the early church. The author, uh, Luke, was certainly more than a historian, but he wasn't less than a historian. He was a teacher. And his great theme in this book is not simply the history of the early church, but rather the history of the mission of the early church. He doesn't give us a total and complete description of all the dimensions of life in the primitive church. He selects certain events in the life of the early church that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and at the same time through his own wisdom, he selects certain events to communicate to us how the spread of Christianity occurred throughout the ancient world, how it broke through all of the barriers and how it brought about change to uh, families and cities and peoples. And so Luke uses real history. Let me underline that word real to teach us about being men and women in mission. Therefore, when we look at the introductory words of Acts, we should study two particular issues. First, Luke claims to be giving us an historical account, not a fabricated or fanciful series of stories. In other words, what we have in Acts is not fake news. It's not propaganda. It's not fairy tale. This man has carefully, and we'll see in a moment, as we compare the opening of Luke and Acts together, we will see the character of his writings. He is writing real history. Secondly, Luke shows us how Jesus prepared his disciples for mission before he sent them out. And so what he's going to cover in the first five verses is that period of time between uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. That is a 40-day period. And so in these first five verses, we're going to look at how Jesus equips and schools, as it were, the apostles. And so, let me invite you at this point, if you uh, have an open Bible, to turn it to Luke chapter 1. Luke wrote both the Gospel and the book of Acts. The Gospel concerns what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts describes what Jesus continues to do and teach. And so keep that in mind. Now notice, he makes a, care, a remarkable claim in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, about how careful he was at his historical relationship, uh, historical endeavor. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, 
that you may have a certain certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So Acts is in reality volume 2 uh, of uh, following volume 1 of Luke's gospel. But how did Luke come to know the events of Jesus's life? He says there were three stages. First, there were eyewitnesses who carefully guarded and handed down these accounts. So here Luke acknowledges his dependence on eyewitnesses as historians normally would. Second, Luke not only makes an orderly account of this eyewitness material, he says many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things. So by the time Luke is writing, uh, 25 or 30 years after Jesus' death, there were already other written records of Jesus' life. Third, Luke claims that I myself uh, carefully investigated everything from the beginning that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke is here claiming that he did not rely on one eyewitness, but rather he compared his sources, he carefully investigated them. This would have been quite possible for Luke, who probably knew many of the apostles and also uh, hundreds of other eyewitnesses. He would have been in a position to check the accounts through interviews with many others. Also, know this about Luke. As a doctor, he was an educated person. And the Greek of the book of Acts is stylish and that of a cultured, well-educated person of the time. And Luke tells us about his method. He used both historical accounts and eyewitness material, which he carefully compared with one another and investigated with his own personal research. His goal was so that the readers would know the certainty of the events they had learned about. Luke then is making a very direct claim to a painstaking historical accuracy in both his account of Jesus' life and the book of Acts, the life of the early church. Now this puts us in a very interesting bind. It means that we cannot read Luke or Acts and say, these are legends and myths that grew up about Jesus and the apostles. Some of them may be true, but many of them are embellished. Luke's claim means that we either must assume he is writing accurate history or that he is writing an extremely deliberate set of lies foisted on the public to promote his religion. Luke's language is not that of a compiler of stories and myths. He most emphatically denies that he was doing that. He says what he wrote, uh, he, he, most, he says what he wrote nothing down unless it was historically checked out and certain. Uh, so in the incidents described, uh, if the incidents he describes in the book of Acts never happened, then he is very deliberately lying about them. In that case, we shouldn't believe anything he says at all. But if Luke and Acts were really uh, deliberate lies, written just 30 years after the events occurred, how could Christianity have made such progress when literally thousands of people who were still alive, who had seen and heard Jesus speak and do miracles. And how do we account for the remarkable accuracy we will see 
as the weeks go by of Luke's knowledge of geography and of the culture of the cities he visited with Paul. Such knowledge indicates that he was really along on these trips and that he really saw personally many of the things that transpired. So we grow in uh, confidence that we can believe what we are reading because Luther is a careful historian. Yes, he is guided by his theology, and he does write theology, and theology undergirds everything he says, but this book is historical, as is the person of Jesus Christ and at, at the work he accomplished on our behalf. Christianity rests upon verifiable historical events. It is not ahistorical. Now, what is this... Uh, tell us about Luke's theme or subject for the book of Acts. The perfect purpose of Acts in its composition is revealed when Luke describes his gospel first volume as about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And if we reflect on that, we will see that if Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach, then Acts is about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. Therefore, Luke does not think of Luke as about Jesus and Acts as about the church. Both books are about Jesus first, his ministry on earth exercised personally, and secondly, his ministry from heaven exercised through his representatives on earth, that is, the apostolic church. Supporting this is the view that uh, Luke repeats the ascension of Jesus. In the gospel, it ends the book, but it begins the book of Acts. The ascended Christ now continues his ministry in the world through his church. Some think the best title for Acts would be the ministry of the ascended Christ through his church. Luke's first two verses, I'm quoting John Stott here, Luke's first two verses are extremely significant. It is no exaggeration to say that they set Christianity apart from every other religion. These regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says Jesus only began his, after his resurrection, ascension, and gift of the Holy Spirit. He continued his work first and foremost through the ministry of his chosen apostles and subsequently through the post-apostolic church of every period and place. This, then, is the kind of Jesus Christ we believe in. He is both the historical Jesus who lived and the contemporary Jesus who now lives. So Jesus begins in this text to prepare the disciples and their minds before he sends them out with power. And let's look at how Jesus engages his apostles here. We are told that Jesus put the apostles through a period of training and instruction before he sent them out with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's often forgotten that intensive training occurred before the power of Pentecost arrived. Many people think that all the church really needs is more of the Spirit, but the Bible never pits learning and truth against power or truth against the Spirit. Spirit, or worship, is always in spirit and truth. 
In fact, there is no spiritual power without truth because the job of the Holy Spirit is to take the truths about Jesus and make them vivid and glorious and heart-shaping and heart-melting. The Spirit of truth, Jesus says, will glorify me by taking of mine and making it known to you. In John 16, the Spirit uh, gives us the power by making the truth of God shine and empower us. He may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope and the power. He may strengthen you with power through his spirit that you may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It might be helpful to think of the Holy Spirit as fire, but the truth of God's word is fire wood. Without both wood and fire, you have no fire. And so this principle is particularly obvious in Paul's statement that the gospel itself is the power of God. It doesn't just bring the power of God. It is the power of God. The Spirit never works, or rarely works, apart from the truth. It is only as the truth enlightens the heart And as it grasps us, that the Spirit gives us the power of love and confidence for being witnesses. One of the prerequisites for dynamic mission, then, is a deep and rich understanding of Scripture. So what did this instruction consist of? What was this advanced training done now so the disciples could understand the big picture, the macro, of God's plan? We get a glimpse of this advanced training in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. And it's tantalizing. First, he showed them how all the Bible was really about Jesus. That is the message of the Bible. What we find in the law, what we find in the former and the latter prophets, what we find in the writings and the Psalms is all about Jesus. In other words... uh, On the road to Emmaus, he gave them the ultimate Bible survey and showed them the interpretive key to understanding all of the Scriptures. He opened their mind to understand the Scripture. It's amazing. It cannot mean that he simply surveyed the contents of each book of the Old Testament and learned all the stories in a mechanical way. It means they learned what every part of the Bible means, how every part points to Christ. Second, Jesus showed them how to preach the gospel out of the Bible, how to call people to repentance and grace. He showed them how to be witnesses to these things so that people find forgiveness. He showed them how to present and apply the truth of the Bible. In other words, Jesus gave the disciples the definitive training in Bible, theology, and mission. However, One of the themes that Luke mentions here in Acts is that Jesus taught them about the kingdom of God. And it's obviously very important for them to understand the nature of this kingdom. This must not have been a very easy lesson for them to grasp. The question in verse 6 reveals that the apostles were more confused about it until the end. John Calvin points out there as many errors in this question as words. There are at least three mistakes. 
I'm not going to talk about that today. We'll talk about that next week. But he did talk to them about the ruling, reigning power of God that has perforated and broke into, broken into space and time that is bringing about healing and restoration in an already sense, but will one day be fully released when the kingdom is consummated at Jesus' second coming. Now, what things are given to the apostles as he continues this teaching and training? Uh, he had to uh, develop the apostles' understanding of what he was talking about. And so the next two points in your outline in the bulletin have to do with Christ and the first fruits of the coming restoration. He tells us in verse 3 that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he gave them proofs, and the word proof here is a very interesting word. It doesn't just mean to lay evidence out, but to lay evidence out that um, brings about and creates assurance. It is compelling. It is evidence that is undeniable. It is, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, true truth. And so what is that? Well, Jesus was alive. Jesus was alive. There's no way we can recapture the joy and stunned awe which followed the discovery, but at least we can pay attention to the many convincing proofs that persuaded the apostles of this reality. And I want to look at some of those proofs that indicate that Jesus was alive because the apostles could not be sent out on a mission until they understood the implications not only of the death of Jesus Christ, but also of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ, his session at the right hand, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, and ultimately his return. So let's take a careful look at some of these proofs. First, there were the Lord's appearances to people post resurrection. They were intermittent, but repeated over a period of no less than 40 days. There wasn't uh, any one-off isolated incidents, but a regular succession until these occurrences, which at first shattered every norm they had hitherto known, became virtually normal. Then there were his demonstrations of what it means to be a resurrected human being. The apostles, like anyone else of the first century, had never seen such a thing before. And when for the first time Jesus suddenly appears in their midst in the upper room, they naturally thought he was a ghost. And they were terrified and scared and sore afraid, which means terrified, beyond comforting. So Christ demonstrated to them that he was not a disembodied spirit. His body was not still in the grave. It was standing in front of them. No part of him was dead at all. He was totally alive as a complete human being. Death had not been survived. It had been undone. The body that before his death had been an integral part of his human personality had not been left behind, but was resurrected, not superseded, but glorified. He invited them to examine his hands and his feet, 
for they carried the scars of Calvary and would identify him as the same physical Jesus who had been crucified. But there was more to it than that. Look at my hands and feet, he said. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He thus not only identified to himself as the same Jesus they had known before, he taught them the basic, a basic fact about human beings. He was not denying that the human soul and spirit survive death. They do, of course, we know that. But he was implying that for human beings to be fully themselves after having died, they must regain a physical, tangible body. And not just any body, but a body related to the body that they had before, now reconstructed and glorified. This, and nothing less than this, is what Luke meant when he says Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles. And the demonstrations were not by way of providing exotic but irrelevant information about the world beyond. The holy body that stood before them was both the first fruits and the pattern of the great restoration of all things which they must presently go out and preach to the world as the very heart of their gospel. Jesus is a preview of coming attractions that will happen to everyone who is united to him by faith. Once you understand that union with Christ is the basis of all of our hope, that what has happened to Jesus will happen to us, that we died with him, we were buried with him, we were resurrected with him, we are now seated in heavenly places in him, and one day he will resurrect our bodies and reunite them and we will live forever with him and so God's mighty process in the man Jesus Christ God's mighty process for the restoration of the universe has already begun it has already started the future has penetrated into the present and Jesus walking before his disciples as a resurrected living savior foreshadows and shows the reality of where things are going. And the apostles needed to know that with confidence. Everything has been set in motion, moving toward the end. God's plan has in no way been disrupted by the heinous act of crucifying the Lord of glory, but rather fulfilled. And then the Lord demonstrated another thing about his resurrection body that was not only physical itself, it could interact if he chose with our physical world. And what is more, with our physical world in its present state and not merely with the world as it will be when it's transformed and restored. The world did not have to be finally and fully transformed before he could visit it and interact with it. He asked for food. This is interesting. He asked for food. They gave him broiled fish. And he let them watch him eat it. They, he let them watch him eat it. The sign, uh, that sight of it remained permanently fixed in their memories, controlling what they meant whenever they spoke of his resurrection. Listen to Peter a year or so later talking to Cornelius and assuring him of the reality of the resurrection of Christ. We are the men God, whom God has chosen to be witnesses. And then he adds, we ate with him and we drank with him after 
he rose from the dead. Continuing demonstrations taught the apostles that Jesus' body was not in every respect the same as it was formerly. It had been transformed. It already belonged to the uh, ages to come. It, it already was part of the new age, the new order that has been ushered in by the kingdom of God. He could visit our world, enter it at any point instantaneously he could take part in its affairs and then leave it just as instantaneously it is what the apostle paul was later to describe as a spiritual body it would be as idle conge to conjecture what the mechanics and physics of it could be as it would be unscientific to claim the science declares the whole thing impossible true science seeks to understand and describe the normal or normative it is for history to tell us whether something happened abnormal and that science cannot yet explain has in fact happened. Science is not omniscient, no matter what science may say. It cannot even explain everything it can observe. It cannot rule out in advance such a possibility. If history has given overwhelming evidence that in the resurrection of Christ the great redeeming and recreating power of God has broken into the regularities of our fallen world true science will adjust its worldview to allow for it but let's get back to the prologue Christ repeated repeated goings and comings again established two further points basic to the Christian gospel first his going away did not involve some irreversible process he could and did come again and secondly when he came again it was still in the same physical body when therefore at the ascension they were told by the angels this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven they had already been prepared for the idea that this second coming too would involve the physical, bodily return of the Lord. And when they subsequently preached the return of Christ as an essential part of the gospel, they were not attempting to describe the altogether indescribable by using apocalyptic terminology that has to be demythologized before modern people can understand it. They were announcing in straightforward terms that Christ would return to our world as literally as he returned to them repeatedly during this 40-day period. With unimaginably great splendor, no longer privately, but with worldwide awareness of his coming, but with no less than physical, bodily reality. And then there was another convincing proof that persuaded the apostles of the reality of the resurrection of their Lord. He not only appeared to them over a period of 40 days, he also spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Never to their dying day would they forget uh, the conversations that corrected their mistaken ideas on the topic and nature of the kingdom. The mistaken ideas that almost wrecked their faith when they saw Jesus crucified. And so we'll talk more about the kingdom of God next week. But what I want to again um, emphasize is that during this 40-day period, he showed himself alive with convincing proofs. They would never forget 
how and when and by whom their faith had been restored. It was not by coming to feel through faith in the human spirit can rise up again after any disaster, however devastating, but rather it was by meeting the risen Lord and hearing him in person expound from every corner of the Old Testament what the divinely ordained plan was and the, what the order of events should be for the setting up of Messiah's kingdom the Messiah had first to suffer and after that and only after that enter into his glory. Soon they would see him descend and depart into the far country. What then would be the next thing in God's program or plan for the restoration of all things? And here's what it is. Their baptism in the Holy Spirit, he said. But what in the world was that? Well, let's look at the first fruits of the Spirit. With the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, something took place the like of which had never ever happened before in the whole of human history. Indeed, as Christians came later to realize, an entity came into existence that had never before existed in these terms anywhere else in the universe. And that is the body of Christ. Yes, there was the church in the Old Testament. And there was, as we'll see in a moment, the working of the Spirit under the Old Covenant. But this is the New Covenant expression of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. Acts, for its part, helps us grasp the all-importance of that event. And we will see it as we continue. First, by recording our Lord's announcement of this coming and his strict instructions to the apostles not to leave Jerusalem until this had taken place. So by recording Christ's description of what it was they were to re expect, wait, he said, for the promise of the Father, which you heard about from me, he said only the promise of the Father. He might have been referring simply to the Old Testament passages in which God promises to pour out His Spirit. But then he added the phrase, which you have heard about me, which points to the teaching on the topic given earlier by the Lord Himself, especially the night before Calvary as recorded by John. You know, in the upper room discourse in John's gospel, Christ had spoken four times of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Twice, even saying on one occasion that he must go away himself, else the Holy Spirit would not come. Now risen from the dead and about to go away himself, he was reminding his apostles of the promise that, of what the Holy Spirit was about to do as he came. But come in what sense? The Holy Spirit had long since been active in the world, empowering the great saints and warriors of God under the old covenant. How would Christ say that he would not come unless he himself went away? What was this obviously different and unprecedented coming? An analogy will help. When our Lord came to Bethlehem, that was not the first time that the second person of the Trinity had visited earth. There are many theophanies and Christophanies in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate appearances of the second person of the Trinity. But there was an appearance... Uh, there was an immense categorical difference between the many comings uh, of the pre-incarnate theophanies and the unique coming to Bethlehem. 
where the Word was irreversibly made flesh. Similarly, there was to be a category difference between the many comings of the Holy Spirit upon the people of the Old Testament days and the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to take up permanent residence in the body of Christ. A new and distinctive epoch or era in the operations of God on earth was about to dawn. And understandably so. The incarnation had been an event unprecedented in all the annals of creation. Calvary, too, was unique. Never before had the earth witnessed the creator of all spiked to a Roman cross. The resurrection that followed was a first in all the history of the race since Adam. And never had heaven's eternity uh, experienced before what it was about to experience with the ascension of the man Jesus Christ into the very presence of God. You've got a lot of major redemptive historical events popping off here one after the other. Uh, there was a silent period of 400 years before the Gospels and before John the Baptist's ministry started. And now things are unfolding and they are amazing. They are astounding. With this at last made possible, therefore was understandably not a simple increase in something that had been quite commonplace even before, but a happening unparalleled and hitherto impossible, the coming of the Holy Spirit to take up permanent residence in the individual believer as well as in the church corporate. In the third place, Christ further underlined the newness of the approaching epoch by emphasizing the unique distinction of the operation that was to inaugurate it. John baptized you with water, he reminded them, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John, we remember, had electrified the whole nation when he first appeared in public. His voice had broken four centuries long silence since Israel's last recognized prophet had spoken. His way, uh, his was the predicted voice in the wilderness announcing the arrival of the long awaited and promised Messiah whose forerunner he was. John, according to the Lord, was the greatest of all mankind. Even so, there was on John's own confession an immeasurable difference between him and Jesus. John could point to the Lamb of God. Jesus was the Lamb of God. John could announce the impending sacrifice for the sin of the world. Jesus offered it. John could preach about forgiveness. Jesus had the authority to personally grant it. John could demand repentance and baptize people in water in token of it. However, by his own admission, he could not baptize repentant and forgiven sinners in the Holy Spirit, and thus unite men with God. But the Lord Jesus could, and he was now about to do so. And when, uh, and when at Pentecost he did so, he would do what no other man, however holy, however exalted, uh, had done ever since God's uh, redemptive work was formed. At Pentecost, a new epoch would begin. God's redemptive work would move on to an altogether higher place. Finally, Christ indicated the nature of the approaching epoch by instructing them that they would be baptized in the Holy Spirit within a few days and then making them wait for it until the day of Pentecost. 
That shows at least that the choice of the day of Pentecost for the coming of the Spirit was deliberate. But what was the point of this choice? Maximum publicity is possibly one answer. The Feast of Pentecost was one of the major religious festivals in the year. If the divine purpose was to advertise the coming of the Holy Spirit by the miracle of other tongues, what better time to stage the miracle than at a festival when Jerusalem would be full of visitors foreign at a fest, uh, countries who knew and could recognize those foreign tongues. But publicity was not the only reason. Let's take the analogy of another famous Jewish festival, Passover. Its annual celebration was a reminder to Israel's or, uh, of Israel's original redemption out of Egypt, a historical event that had been valid, effective, and significant in its own right. Passover, then, was obviously not a prophecy waiting to be fulfilled in the way the predictions are fulfilled, but subsequent history showed it was a pattern of bigger things. Just before the Lord uh, suffered, he indicated that through his death, Passover would be fulfilled. And so spiritual minds eventually came to see the death of Jesus at Passover time was no accident. It took place according to the foreordination of God, who had ordained from before the foundation of the world that Christ should be sacrificed as our Passover to release us from a far worse and more bitter slavery than ever Pharaoh had imposed. Pentecost, listen, we're about done. Pentecost was originally one of a pair of agricultural festivals celebrating the beginning of the first harvest of the year. Before the standing corn was completely ripe and ready, a sheaf was cut off and offered as first fruits to God. Fifty days later, that is on the day of Pentecost, two loaves baked from the first flour to be milled from the newly reaped grain were also offered as first fruits to God. Harvest time in any primitive economy is always a joyous occasion. In Israel, the joy was both natural and sacred. God, they believed, had given them Canaan as their inheritance. Harvest was the reaping of the blessings of that God-given inheritance. Later in the year would come other harvests of grapes and other festival fruits, and they would be celebrated in other festivals, but nothing uh, quite like the joy of the first two festivals when uh, the scarcities and gloom of winter gave way to the glorious taste of the first fruits of the year. Israel had been celebrating these agricultural festivals for centuries, but the year that Jesus rose from the grave, there were bigger things to celebrate. His resurrection was the first break in the most terrible winter and his glorified body as the first fruits of a mightier harvest. That's why I referred to the first fruits of the risen Christ. His guarantees ours. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came as the first fruits of a greater inheritance, a foretaste, and a guarantee of creation's final restoration. The freshness and joy of it all pervades Luke's history. As I conclude, Acts chapter 1, 1 through 5, reviews the resurrection of Jesus and his setting up of their enablement for mission. The apostles 
benefit from Jesus' choice, his revelation, his commission, and God's promise of the Spirit. They cannot proceed without the enablement of the new era that is the Spirit of God. This provision from the Father was promised long ago. The faith has ancient roots. As the apostles returned to Jerusalem, they can be assured that the suffering of Jesus did not end the story of the kingdom, but were part of God's program. Jesus is raised, alive, and ready to bestow the blessings they need to carry out the mission that he's going to give them. He is able to do this, uh, he is able to do this is what the ascension will show, which we will look at next week, as he prepares them for the mission. There will be a day when Jesus will return from heaven to complete what God has started through him. The introduction to Acts not only highlights the key themes of the book, it also proclaims with assurance that God's plan. His foreordained program, if you will, is on track. This is the major application. Jesus' resurrection and the coming of the Spirit assure us that God is at work and the plan of salvation is intact. The Spirit's coming and indwelling guarantee this. It is a central goal of the Spirit operating in the church that God's community be committed to to mission and that is the heart of what the book of acts is about so as i close let me bring to bear upon you the reality of what luke is sharing with theophilus he is telling him some amazing things almost in rapid fire order have happened and are continuing to happen that have implications for the reality of the risen living, bodily Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. We're going to look next week at the ascension and all of its implications for living now. But the glory of this passage is Jesus is alive. Jesus is not a religious teacher who died and his teachings live on. He is a resurrected, embodied, sitting in session at the right hand of God, continuing his ministry of doing and teaching in the church as he gives the Holy Spirit to this body in order that they fulfill the mission that he has. What great confidence we can have and what great assurance we can have that these realities are fulfillments of promises God made long ago and are realities still in effect and living today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message in the book of Acts. We thank you for the reality of the risen Savior. We thank you that this is what the good news is. Christ has come. He has died for our sins. He has, was buried as dead. On the third day, he arose again and conquered and triumphed over death. He has poured out His Spirit upon His church. And He will eventually come again and take us to be with Him where He is. Lord, comfort us in these words, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.